If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Today, we're transitioning in our consideration of the catechism to the next big section, the grace or salvation section of our catechism. And today, we're going to be thinking upon the nature of death, and specifically the death of a substitute. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. The author to the Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected, for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Well, let's end the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. If you take out your order of worship again and look at the confessional reading section of our liturgy, we'll be confessing together Lord's Day 5, which is question and answers 12 through 15. Boys and girls, Lord's Day 5, question and answers 12 through 15. Again, this is the first Lord's Day in this next big section of our catechism, the grace or, or salvation section. Question answers 12 through 15. I'll read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 12 asks, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. 
How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Question 14 asks, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. no. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Question 15 asks, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. As you may have recalled, we have finished a relatively short section, the guilt section of the Catechism. And to summarize that section, we considered how sin is revealed through the law. We considered sin's origin being not in God, but in the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. We consider sin's effect upon us as a human race, that we all have this poison nature and thus are totally unable to choose the good. And then last week, we looked at sin's consequence, which is God's judgment, God's just judgment against sin. And we consider Genesis chapter 3, both the temporal judgment as well as the everlasting judgment that we inherit as being descendants of, of Adam. So today, if, if you were to summarize this Lord's Day in one question and answer, I think we're essentially considering this. How do we as sinners, and those who are the recipients of God's just judgment, how do we as sinners escape God's wrath and be again restored into his favor? So how do we as sinners escape God's wrath and be restored into his favor? The simple answer that I'd like us to consider is it's through the death of a substitute. The death of a substitute. I don't know if you've considered this much before, but imagine if you didn't grow up in, in the Christian church and you really grew up as a pretty militant atheist with no religion whatsoever, and you start coming to a, a Christian church, worshiping with a congregation, reading the Bible, you probably would be quite struck by how bloody our religion is. You probably would think it would be quite strange that we're singing songs about the blood of a, a man who died 2,000 years ago. We claim, at least use the language of drinking, the blood of a savior. It would be somewhat off-putting, strange, weird. We have a bloody religion. You read Genesis through Revelation and there's blood all over the, te uh, uh, the Bible. One trend we've seen, especially in the last century or so with, with um, the rise of, of liberal theology is this trend among liberal theologians to kind of downplay this aspect of our religion. The need for death, the need for, for a, a blood sacrifice to appease a, a wrathful God. 
as I was reading this week, I came across a quote by one 20th century theologian who summarized this liberal trend this way. And I think it, it, he captures it in a very helpful way. He says, the liberal theology of this last century is a, uh, claims to put forward a God without wrath, or no, it's a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the menstruations of a Christ without a cross. God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the menstruations of a Christ without a cross. What's absent in all of those things? God's justice, God's judgment, the need for death. I think one reason there's that trend is it's, it's easier to come to terms with a, a religion that's not quite so bloody, that doesn't put death as such an important aspect of it. But what I want us to consider is how death is necessary to be restored back into God's favor. Death is necessary for his wrath and justice to be satisfied. And so this idea of the death of a substitute is foundational to our religion, to the Bible, and to, to God himself. So we'll be looking at both aspects of that thesis, why death is necessary and why this death needs to be um, done by a substitute. It needs to be a substitutionary death. So first, how would you answer that question? Why is death necessary from, question, from the answer of question 12? Why is death necessary from the answer of question 12 or Heidelberg Catechism? Yeah, good. Thank you. What, what, I'm looking particularly for the phrase in the, cat, in the question and answer. Satisfy his judgment. What was that? Satisfy his judgment. judgment. And what attribute of God does the catechism answer put forward? His justice. Justice, yes. And yes, what you said about God's judgment and um, condemnation, those things are, are rooted in God's justice. But I love that, that first part of the answer of question 12. God requires or wills that his justice be satisfied. The reason why death is necessary in a fallen world is because we serve a just God. He can't just wink at sin. He can't just, I don't know if you've wondered, why can't God just forgive sin? Because his justice requires that sins that are infractions upon that justice, that those sins be punished. His justice requires that there be punishment. Now, in Exodus 23, 7, we read God himself making another statement about his justice. He says that he will not acquit the, guilt, uh, the wicked. God will not acquit the, acquit the wicked. And then in Proverbs 17, 15, he goes on to say, or um, yeah, Proverbs 17, 15, we, we learn that God, um, God is also a just God. He says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So the one who looks upon the innocent and says, and says um, um, guilty, condemned, 
or the one who looks upon the wicked and, say, and says justified, both are abomination to the Lord because that's not just. And we know that even in our own legal system. We want justice to be served. We want our, our judges and our legal courts to be just. This is why, then, we encounter death from the very opening of, uh, from the very beginning of Scripture, especially after the fall. We considered last week, right after Adam and Eve sinned and God came with curse and judgment, uh, what did he do to Adam and Eve? He clothed them with the skins of dead animals. Adam professed faith, called Eve the mother of all living, and then he comes and clothes Adam and Eve with the skins of dead animals, showing, uh, foreshadowing for us that the way back to the tree of life is going to come through death, the death of a substitute, and the death of this seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. So even in Genesis 3, we see this revelation that death is going to be required. Obviously, as you fast forward on in, in, in your Old Testament, we come across Israel under the Mosaic Covenant and this, this um, sacrificial and ritual system that God institutes for them and all of these animal sacrifices that are necessary. So we see, one, one thing that we see in those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament is that the shedding of blood is necessary to be restored back to God's favor, for us to have the forgiveness of sins. God's justice must be satisfied. That's what all of this death teaches us. God's justice must be satisfied. And that's why Hebrews 9 verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God is a just God, and therefore he needs to satisfy that justice and punish sin that's committed against his supreme majesty, as we considered last week. So death is necessary because of God's justice. But now let's think about the substitutionary nature of this death. The substitutionary nature of this death. We've seen our catechism uh, that in question 13, you know, can we pay for our sins? And it very simply says, no, we cannot. Because rather than uh, paying for our sins, we increase our guilt day after day. We continue to add to that debt, <laughs> add to the, the, the punishment and wrath that we deserve. And so, of course, we ourselves are off the table as ones who can atone for our own sins. And so uh, the question 14 asks, well, can a creature a creature pay this penalty for us. And so this is where I'd like us to think about sub the substitutionary death of animals because in the Old Testament, especially under the Mosaic Covenant, we come across many animal sacrifices that function as substitutes uh, for the people. Now you'll see in Hebrews chapter 10, which we read earlier, we have multiple references to this repeated nature of the animal sacrifices. They were offered repeatedly. And one conclusion that the author, author to the Hebrews makes from that fact is that they can never take away sins. There's no def definitive forgiveness because you constantly have to be doing it. You constantly have more sacrifices to offer. You're never in a definitive state of forgiveness based on those animal sacrifices themselves. And that's why in verse 4, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in themselves, these animal sacrifices were completely insufficient. 
There's nothing magical in these animal sacrifices that were forgiving these people before a holy God. However, notice what verse 1 says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. There's a connection between the sacrifices that were, that were given in the Old Testament and the true form of these rea realities, which is Christ himself. So in themselves, these sacrifices had no power or efficacy. But insofar as they pointed people to Christ and that greater sacrifice, they did have power. They did have sufficiency. There's a real sacramental connection, union between the sacrifices and Christ. Think, for instance, of our own sacraments. The waters of baptism, as we know, do not become the blood of Christ. The waters of baptism are not in themselves the forgiveness, the washing away of sins. Rather, they're a sign and seal of that reality. But there's nothing magical going on in the waters of baptism. Similarly, with the Lord's Supper, it's not as if when the, the host and the, the, the wine, it, it's consecrated. It's not, it's not turning into the actual body and blood of Christ. When we partake of the supper, we're still just eating ordinary bread and wine. They're a sign and seal of, of Christ and union with him. And so, too, with these sacrifices, there's nothing necessarily magical going on with these sacrifices. But insofar as people offer these sacrifices by faith and recognize the connection of them to Christ, they do have the forgiveness of sins. They have the forgiveness of sins ahead of time, just as when you partake of the, of the sacraments by faith, something's actually happening, happening. You are being united more and more to Christ himself. So in themselves, they're insufficient. But insofar as one partakes of them by faith and are led to Christ, there is real power and efficacy. The sacrifices, in one sense, were the means of grace for the people in that time of redemptive history. You know, the age to come, we're not going to be worshiping the way we worship now with baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to be at the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But it's fitting for us to do these things in this age, in this period of redemptive history. And so, in that period of redemptive history, is very fitting for the Israelites to engage in these sacrifices because God himself ordained these sacrifices so that Christ could be granted to them ahead of time. One way you can think about this is uh, like the uh, boys and girls. You probably all have had a candy bar before have a candy bar, I'm sure you're very thankful that these candy bars come in, in, a, in a wrapper. If you were at a grocery store and you're at the checkout line, you see the candy bars, and there was one candy bar that had no wrapping on it, I'm sure that would not be the one that you would pick. It's kind of gross, isn't it? Dust, germs everywhere. You're glad that the wrapper's on the candy bar. But what happens when you want to eat that candy bar? You tear off the wrapper, throw it away, and eat the candy bar. I hope none of us here preserves that, can that wrapper and hangs it on our wall as some sort of memorabilia. It served its purpose, and now it can be discarded. Well, in a similar way, these sacrifice, sacrifices had, uh, to use a technical term, planned obsolescence. It was useful and necessary for a certain time in history, but it was never meant to be permanent. 
Just as the wrapper in a candy bar was never meant to be permanent, it had a temporary use. And so when Christ comes as the fulfillment of those sacrifices and offers himself as the great sacrifice, there's no more need for these types and shadows. The wrapper can be discarded. And that's what the author of the Hebrews is, is instructing us here. And we have to remember the context of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who recently uh, were, were converted and they're likely worshiping in a house church under the threat of persecution. They're trusting in a priest that they've never met who's in heaven in a sacrifice that they themselves did not physically see or experience. And they're having some nostalgia for the past. They look across the street and they see the grandeur of the temple. They see a priest that they could actually have bodily interaction with. They have sacrifices that are tangible to their senses. They can smell, touch, taste, or not taste, but uh, see these sacrifices. And they're thinking, huh, that kind of seems better than what we have here. And so the author of Hebrews is warning them, don't go back because you have things that are infinitely greater than what Israel had under the types and shadows. You have the fulfillment, the reality of all of these things. And if you go back once Christ has come, you're cutting yourself off from Christ. Because those sacrifices are now like a wrapper in the garbage. There's no more use for it. So if you go back, you're cutting yourself off from Christ. And so he's warning them, warning them to, to stay, stay with Christ, who is the fulfillment of, of all of these Old Testament sacrifices. So the, the substitutionary death of these animals, they're insufficient in themselves, but they were sufficient insofar as people partook of them by faith and were led to Christ. Well, now I want us to briefly consider the substitutionary death of Christ, which is the whole point of, of what these animal sacrifices uh, were, were instituted for, namely to point them to the substitutionary death of Christ. So if you look in your Bibles at verses 11 through 14, the author of Hebrews here engages in a great contrast between the Old Testament priests and their sacrifices and Jesus and his sacrifice. So if you look at verse 11 with me, we read, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, what bodily position did the, these priests assume as they were engaging in their priestly duties? Standing. Standing. Yeah, we read, stands daily at, their, at, at, at his service. And what adverb is used to describe the frequency of, of the, these sacrifices? Repeatedly. Repeatedly. So these priests are standing, and they're offering uh, repeated sacrifices. And what's the result of these sacrifices? They can never take away sin. Exactly. So the priests are, are standing offering repeated sacrifices, which can never take away sins in themselves. Now, let's read verse 12. Notice the contrast. But when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So here, what is the frequency of Christ's sacrifice? Once. And notice how many times the author of Hebrews repeats the idea that this sacrifice is a single sacrifice, one sacrifice. He does it on a number of occasions. So in contrast to the priests who offer repeated sacrifices, Christ offers one sacrifice. That's it. And what bodily position then does Christ assume after he offers this single sacrifice? He sits down. Again, notice the contrast. The priests were always standing, signifying that there was always work to be done. When I think of that, I grew up on a farm, and I just remember growing up, there was always work to be done. It felt like you could never just sit, because the cows had to be milked every single day. Much the same way with a priest. They always had work to, to do. There was never that time of, oh, I, I, I'm done. I've completed everything. He was always standing daily at his service. In contrast to Christ, he sits. He offers for all time a single sacrifice, and he sits. Now, we don't necessarily have to take this literal. Other times we, we, refer, we hear Christ standing in heaven. But what's really important about this language of sitting, so important that our forefathers included it in the Apostles' Creed. Think about that. They were being very selective about what's important enough to be included in the Apostles' Creed. And they, they think that this aspect of Christ sitting at God's right hand is important enough to be included in this short creed. And the reason why this statement of Christ's session is so important is because it signifies that his work to accomplish salvation is done. He can rest. Nothing more needs to be added to forgive us of our sins. Standing, sitting. Standing implies work. Sitting implies rest. The work is complete. It's done. That's why Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, says, it is finished. I've completed my work. I can enter God's Sabbath rest. And those statements where we read about Christ standing, uh, that signifies for us that his work is both finished and yet ongoing because we learn that Christ is in heaven and he continues there on our behalf as our intercessor, our mediator. He prays on our behalf. So both of those images are wonderful. Because on the one hand, we learn that his, our work of, his work of salvation is completely finished. Nothing needs to be added to it. But he continued to minister on our behalf as he is portrayed as standing. Now look with me in verse 14. Verse 14, author of the Hebrews talks about the result of Christ's sacrifice. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here, what's the result of this single sacrifice of sins in the language of, of Hebrews? Yeah. Perfected, yes. He is perfected for all time. This term, uh, term for perfected in Hebrews is a term that's used on a number of occasions, and it refers to this definitive salvation, our justification, as it were, being declared perfectly righteous, innocent, holy, because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Notice this contrast. The Old Testament priests stand after repeated sacrifices, which can never take away sins, and Christ offers a single sacrifice, sits, 
and perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. The wonderful literary contrast that uh, the author employs here to, to show the contrast between the Old Testament types and shadows and the New Testament reality in Christ. As we soon uh, wrap up here, I'd like to conclude by thinking, of, uh, you don't have to turn there, but uh, thinking of, uh, upon Romans 4.26. Here, the Apostle Paul says that God sent Christ to be our propitiation, which means God, uh, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And in so doing this, God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, Christ, in Jesus. So how does God manifest his justice in sending Jesus on our behalf? Exactly. Every sin of all of God's people, past, present, and, and future, is laid upon Christ on the cross, which means his justice is fully satisfied. So every sin, even sins you have not even committed yet, if you trust in Christ, have been put away. Christ has paid the penalty for those sins. God's justice has been fully satisfied. And as a consequence, he can now justify the ungodly in a way that does not compromise the justice, his own justice. This is where we see God's justice and mercy kiss. His justice is displayed upon Christ so that he can display his mercy towards us who are sinners. That's why death, death is absolutely necessary uh, for God's wrath to be abated. And if we want to be restored back into God's presence, then it needs to be done by a substitute. And next week we'll consider a bit more the nature of this mediator and consider why exactly he needed to be true man and true God. Why did he need both a human nature and uh, his divine nature to make this satisfaction, this, this, this uh, substitutionary death on the behalf of his people.